it's a fallacy to think that redistricting commissions can take the politics out of redistricting. Taking the politics out of redistricting is like taking the salt out of the ocean. You just can't do it. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Adam Kincaid joins us today. He's the executive director of the National Republican Redistricting Trust. We'll call it NRRT for the rest of the show to save some time, which is responsible for coordinating the GOP's national redistricting strategy. Adam has held a number of senior roles at the RNC, the NRCC, and RGA. And in today's episode, we dig into the actual nuts and bolts of redistricting and how it works. Adam, redistricting, as you well know, pops up onto everyone's radars every decade after a census and certainly gets lots of attention, but it's something you've been working on for almost five years now. How did you overcome the challenge of getting different stakeholders like elected officials and donors to focus on this problem or challenge so early? I wish I could take credit for that. There were a lot of people for literally decades in the Republican Party pushing on leadership to create a institution, an organization focused on redistricting. For a long, long time, it was something that was housed primarily at the RNC. But then we got through McCain-Feingold, obviously at the beginning of the early 2000s, and that really cut off a lot of funding for the infrastructure around redistricting. And so when that happened, people started to become more open to creating something on redistricting, but it didn't happen through 2010. And so what happened, I was hired at the NRCC to do redistricting in 2011 and 2012. When I was hired, I was told there's going to be all this great data that could be used for redistricting. And so I walked in the NRCC on the first day and they said, well, go talk to the RNC, figure out what sort of data is available and you know you can get started. And there was no data. No one had invested in the development of redistricting data. And so for the first six months of 2011, while maps were being drawn, we were also developing a redistricting database that we could use for drawing maps and analyzing maps. And so by the end of that cycle, we had redistricting data for only 35 out of the 50 states. Most of the at-large states were triaged out, and most of the states that were solidly Democratic-controlled were triaged out. And so we really only had data for 35 states. But I don't mean a comprehensive data set. We had election data for maybe the 2008 cycle, or if I was lucky, 2008 and 2010. So that was the problem that we had in 2011 and 2012 with redistricting. The thing that we had a benefit of is control. And so after that cycle, a few of us got together and said, look, we really can't be in this position again. We need something that focuses on redistricting 24-7, building the database, gathering the data, because it's not just general election, it's primary election data that you need, and then get rolling on it. And it still took us three more years, but um, to really get people attached to it. But in 2017, what happened was that Republicans looked at this and went, we are losing in court. We're losing districts because we don't have the data to support our arguments. We don't have a group of people that focus on this. So yes, we need to do this. So in 2017, we finally got all the different groups that care about redistricting together and 
started the trust. And so NRRT was founded in the summer of 17. I came over to be the executive director that fall. We also started up a couple different associated nonprofits to help with the data collection, public education that goes along with redistricting. But it was a multi-decade process and it was a lot of different people that helped make it possible over a long period of time. Got it. Well, that's a really interesting sort of recap of the history, right, of NRRT. And in many ways, similar to kind of the challenge that we're trying to solve with Startup Caucus, which is getting our side to really focus on technology investment and focusing on it, as you say, 24-7. Adam, we can't talk about redistricting without talking about gerrymandering, which I will point out doesn't have an agreed upon definition anywhere you look. But I think the simplest argument there is politicians shouldn't choose their voters. So I'd like to hear your best argument for redistricting as both constitutional and necessary? It's absolutely constitutional and necessary. You have to redistrict every decade. Otherwise, what you would have is districts that were wildly out of proportion, which is what we used to have. Um, back in the 1950s, uh, there was a, a court case, Baker of Hecar, that actually required states to redraw their lines because for decades, many of them had not. And so what that did is say, you need to make sure that all the districts in your state are roughly equally populated. And so because of that, after every census, we have to redraw the lines. Um, a lot of states had created at-large seats because they didn't want to create new districts. So yes, you have to do it, number one. The thing with gerrymandering, gerrymandering has become this catch-all term for, I don't like it, so it's gerrymandered. Republicans look at districts in some states that are drawn by Democrats. They say, well, that's gerrymandered. Democrats look at districts in Republican states that they don't like and say, well, that's gerrymandered. Independents look at all the districts and say they're gerrymandered. So gerrymandering, the term, has been used so much that it virtually means nothing anymore. I'll give you an example. If a, if a Republican state drew a map that was whole counties, right, made up of a building block of whole counties within a district, Democrats are going to look at that and they're going to argue that's a stealth gerrymander or a clean gerrymander because somehow drawing whole county maps benefits Republicans, so therefore it must be gerrymandered. Republicans look at what Democrats do in places where they take cities, split them up into multiple pieces and stretch their voters out across suburban and rural areas like they did in Illinois, and we say that's gerrymandered. The problem is there is not one definition of gerrymandering other than to draw districts that are created for one specific political or ideological end. So yeah, there's not one definition other than I don't like it. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to put it. And, and I want to do a quick history lesson here to remind listeners that shaping districts strategically like this is not new. And it is not the domain of one party, as you point out with the Illinois example. We get the name from 1812 when Elbridge Gary, as governor of Massachusetts, signed maps that made some districts look like a salamander. I'm thinking also back to one of my earliest professional political experiences, which was working in a district office for a North Texas member of Congress back in 2003. You'll remember Tom DeLay sort of architected some redistricting in Texas. And then you had members of the Texas state legislature fleeing the state and going into Oklahoma. And so it is definitely something that's been going on for a long time. What do some of the other terms of art like packing and cracking mean in redistricting speak? Sure. So if someone says a district is packed, it means that it is a district that has a large population of a certain group. We'll say Republicans or Democrats, right? So if a district is like 80% Republican and 20% Democrat, they'll say that's a Republican pack. That's what Democrats did in Illinois. They created three districts that are very, very red. 
so that they could take the rest of the state and split it up among various Democrat leanings of very Democratic districts. But cracking is when you take a group or an area and you split it up into multiple pieces. Again, if you look at Illinois, Democrats took Chicago and the voters in Chicago and cracked them, meaning split them up into pieces, kind of like a pie, and said, well, we're going to put this amount of voters in this district and this amount in this district, because for them, what that enables them to do is spread out Democrat voters across more districts because they're so heavily concentrated within Chicago. So that is, um, Illinois is just a great microcosm of of both of those. You can see packing and cracking uh, in real time right there in that map. So I think it's it's uh, not a controversial analysis to say that no one is ever happy with how maps get drawn, right? Uh, and, and that there's always going to be uh, partisan accusations on either side, unless you know you're in one of these states where you only have one district, and and those those lines are pretty easy to draw. You know, one of the approaches we've seen to addressing this and trying to somehow take the politics out of politics is a lot of states have adopted variations of a redistricting commission. Sometimes it's quote unquote independent. Sometimes it's got legislators involved. And this is obviously an attempt to kind of reduce the political pressure. Practically speaking, how does that affect your strategy in those states that have redistricting commissions? First off, it's a fallacy to think that redistricting commissions can take the politics out of redistricting. Uh, taking the politics out of redistricting is like taking the salt out of the ocean. You just can't do it. Redistricting is an inherently political process. And the Supreme Court's even recognized that. So I think it's it's folly to think that these commissions do that. But what you'll find with a lot of them, with these commissions, especially this cycle, is that more and more of them are failing. They're failing to do their jobs. They're failing to do them in a timely manner. It becomes too much infighting, even within these commissions, because they can't agree on how to approach these maps. There's been a couple exceptions, but for the most part, it's been a struggle this cycle. What we do to engage with these commissions is we'll partner with groups in state who have networks on the ground who can work with the commissioners if possible, if not directly, then line people up to testify in front of the commissions to make sure that areas that are maybe conservative leaning aren't split up into multiple districts. If you look at kind of a master class of this that the redistricting cycle this time has kind of learned from is what Democrats were able to do in California in 2011 and 2012. If you look at the redistricting process there, there's a great article. Um, actually, I think it's a series of articles now in ProPublica on how Democrats engaged with the redistricting commission uh, 10 years ago to create the map that they created. That map took the number of Republicans down from, I believe, 19 down to seven mid-decade, and we were able to claw some of them back. But that's one spot where you'll find it's really interesting to look at what the Democrats were able to do. But we've done something similar this time in a whole host of these commission states where we find folks on the ground, engage, and make sure that conservatives have a voice in this process too, and that they know it's happening. One of the biggest problems on the right and center right is that a lot of our people are disengaged when it comes to redistricting. They don't realize it's happening. They don't realize the commission process is going on and that they have a voice in the process. And so a lot of what we do is trying to get folks on our side to engage with these commissions in a way that they maybe otherwise wouldn't. Well, and that's a 
a good point too. In Virginia, where you and I both live, there was the first time doing a, a redistricting commission, and we're as we speak looking at different challenges there, and we may have to have extra sets of election. I mean, it is kind of a good case study in how the answer of commissions is not a silver bullet in impacting the redistricting process. No, redistricting commissions gerrymander too. They use political data to create political ends, and that's gerrymandering. And yeah, we've saw that especially in Michigan this time, where they went out of their way to create Democrat-leaning districts on purpose. And they said from the very beginning, we want to create X number of Democrat seats, but they had to ignore the other criteria in state in order to get there. So, um, you know, to suggest that these commissions don't look at politics is laughable. There's this idea that there's a right specific way to do it. And I think some people think, oh, well, I'm just going to draw a bunch of squares in a state and, and that'll do it. But it's actually a really complicated process. There's always a prioritization of different values. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Adam Kincaid from the National Republican Redistricting Trust. Adam, I want to switch gears for a minute and then get into the weeds on the technical side. I think it's fair to say, possibly an understatement, that you were a data guy. Talk about the tools and software that you're using in your redistricting work. There's a very few number of, of software packages and, and platforms that people use. Some people contract with a Caliper corporation and they use Maptitude for redistricting. There's Autobound, there's CityGate, but Esri redistricting has been the one that we've been happiest with the cycle. Esri obviously is this massive company that does GIS globally and they have a redistricting solution that's been great to work with. And so, but Esri, they know what they're doing when it comes to GIS. The thing is, that's really a lot of these companies have been doing this for a long time. The technology around redistricting isn't really on the map drawing side. It's really been the data side where things have changed on redistricting that in the publicly available platforms that have been more interesting the last decade that have changed this overall approach. I think those are the, the main ones that people are probably most familiar with. Esri and, and Maptitude are the probably the, the biggest ones, but a lot of the states have used CityGate recently uh, to do their redistricting. And you know they have a lot of public input gadgets and gizmos that kind of go along with what they do. So they allow people to submit maps and comment on maps. You probably saw this in Michigan and Virginia. I believe both of those are driven off of what CityGate has developed. So you can look at those and kind of identify a spot on a map that you have issues with and comment on them. But the overall technology side of it has not changed that much over the past decade, interestingly enough. Hmm. And so, Adam, for candidates, whether it's an incumbent or a challenger, what are some of the most important considerations when running in a, a new, let's say, substantially redrawn district? If you're a challenger or you're running an open seat, that's different. You can focus on your new district and you can get that from the state party, figure out what the boundaries are, precinct lists, all that sort of stuff. And I'd encourage any candidates to reach out to their parties to get it, you know, or other, you know, a lot of vendors obviously have that data now and available to them that they can educate people on. But if you're an incumbent, you're kind of pulling in two directions if you've got a new district, which is you have to represent the district you currently have, the district that elected you, and then also keep an eye toward all of these new voters that you're going to have to stand in front of in this fall. Right. And so that's a balance because in many ways you're representing a lot more people because you have to represent the needs of your current district, but also you know, figure out ways to reach out and start dealing with the folks in the district that you want to represent or that you will be representing in just a few months. So it's it's definitely a, a push and pull that kind of it's a weird space for incumbents between 
when a map is redrawn and when you actually represent that new district. And that can be more than a year. You look at some of the districts that were finished in September of 2021, those new districts, you know, people have been dealing with and talking to, they're not actually going to be the representatives for those districts until January of next year. So that's a pretty long lag time before you're actually representing your new district. One just sort of practical note I give to candidates is to identify who those voters are that you may not have spoken to before if you're an incumbent and treat them as a specific segment in addition to the demographic segments that you might otherwise do. Yeah, your target universe definitely expands for a while, doesn't it? Right, because you have to educate them on, yes, I know that you voted for this person for maybe the last decade, but now I need you to vote for me. That can always be uh, an interesting challenge for campaigns. Adam, you were also involved in redistricting strategy post-2010, as you mentioned. Has there been any changes in the data and, and the sophistication that we have there? I think there's a couple different major changes that we have seen over the past decade. One is kind of this proliferation of online platforms that people use to draw maps. So yeah, whether it's Dave's or Redistrict R or whatever else it might be, there's a lot of these different public platforms that people can use to engage with commissions, but also post their proposed maps on social media. That's been a big change because 10 years ago, you know, I think Dave's did exist 10 years ago, but it definitely wasn't the tool that it is now um, for a lot of folks. But, you know, the, the data behind redistricting is, I can't even describe how different it is now. So if you're sitting down drawing maps now in the Republican space, you have at your fingertips or, you know, a couple calls away, a full 50 state redistricting database with general primary, special elections, every election that's happened in your state and your area over the past 10 years, you have access to. 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. 10 years ago, I only had voter registration data in a usable format for redistricting in about five to 10 states. I have it for all 50 now. And so do map drawers across the country. They have access to this data. So, I mean, that's a big thing that's changed is just the fact that RC4 has done a Herculean task over the last five years to build something pretty much from scratch, which is a 50 state redistricting database that's comprehensive. Yeah, I know a lot of vendors out there have also spent a lot of time and energy helping candidates identify the makeups of their new seats and, you know, developing targeting tools that really dig into how these new districts would perform over time. What we've done is to be very intentional about what we gather from where we gather it we know that redistricting is going to end up in court. We know that everything's going to be litigated. And when it's litigated, we want to make sure that the data we're using is straightforward, it's clean, it's easily explainable, because we're not explaining it to other social scientists. They get it no matter what it is. We're explaining it to federal judges who don't have that same data background. So what we're trying to do is say, look, here's voter data from the voter file. Here's election data from the states. And this is how we've developed these data sets. And we have the ability to explain that if need be. So um, what I always encourage people to do is, yes, go and look at consumer data and all that sort of stuff when you're analyzing these seats. But I think it's wise to use you know, the data that's available publicly. And it takes a lot of work to get in a spot that you can use for redistricting because of you know, how redistricting is done. But to use that publicly available data to actually draw the maps is really important when it comes to litigation, explaining where the data came from and how it's being used and how it's not being used. And I want to underline something in that answer, Adam, which is data, particularly around redistricting data and being able to have, have really good tools around that, is not the flashiest 
thing you could build in politics. But it's so critical because these districts are going to be in place for the next decade. It'll really have a determinative impact on not only state legislators, legislatures, but the United States Congress, the House of Representatives. And so it is, it's one of those things where it's, it's not flashy, doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's super important. And so we deal with this all the time in Startup Caucus, right, where people come to us and say, oh, what tech do we need on campaigns and what's new? And, you know, a lot of people want to talk to me about NFTs and cryptocurrency right now. And I'm trying to explain, hey, we just really need better HR platforms and ways to connect people to jobs and get all of our data out of a bunch of different spreadsheets, right? So it's these these little stuff that's not flashy, but really important. So I just want to make sure I underline that um, for listeners at, at just how critical the, the work you've been doing is. So now that the experience is still fresh in your mind and the ink is still drying on some maps, I'd be eager to hear what problems you see or, or challenges that you face that might be good opportunities for future startups or organizations to address. The NRRT and its affiliates are functionally a startup, right? We've we've only been around since 2017. Uh, you know, my first two staff, when we all got together, the three of us, our first thing that we did was we went to Ikea to buy desks <laughs> and ordered laptops because that's, you know, how much from the ground up we were going here. And so building this redistricting database has been an undertaking in ways that I can't even describe. But when it comes to redistricting, the big challenge is that, and you know, everyone who works in election data understands this, is when you're gathering election data, you're not gathering it in one format. And in many times, you're not gathering it from one source either. So you know, there's places where you might have hundreds of different jurisdictions where you're gathering this data from, or some states that still report all of their primary data in PDFs. And so I think one thing that we're definitely going to be looking at over the next couple of years is, again, you're talking about things that aren't super sexy, but super important is optical scanning software that can do a better job of scanning some of these PDFs and figuring out how to um, automate this. I mean, we still have to key punch a lot of things because you can't run them through an optical scanner. So you're you know, key punching in precinct by precinct election data for sometimes a lot of candidates in these Democrat and Republican primaries. And I think there's a couple states, Mississippi always jumps out in my mind where, you know, you can request this data and they'll send you a PDF of what the results were. But then it's not just a typed PDF. It's a PDF that's clearly produced from an Excel file or something else that they've produced it from. But it also has hand notated changes to the election results because they had to go back and they did a recount or something else. Wow. Um, and so when you start adding that up across all jurisdictions across the country, that's a lot of key punching and a lot of having to visually go through and check every page to make sure. So that's a lot of what we have to deal with. And that's something that I think we'll be looking at over the next few years is trying to solve that problem. You know, the other thing that we have to go back and solve is how to generate some of these historic maps, especially for state legislatures. Uh, we have a library that various people have created of every congressional district going back to the founding of the country. And you know, those have been curated by multiple people over time. And so that exists. Legislative seats don't. And if you want to go back and figure out, well, what did the legislative seats look like in 1975 in some state, which oddly enough does come into litigation sometimes, and you have to go back and see if you can find that. It's not described by census blocks or something else. It's described by go down this street and turn left and then follow this river and then go to the county line. But then, 
Um, like that's how they used to describe these legislative seats. And so that's something that we've got to go and solve in some places and is go and track those down, get those bills, and then convert that somehow over time into a shape file or a block assignment file that we could actually use to build out a library of some of these legislative seats. And we're never going to go back to the 1800s or anything, but some maps you do need for the 70s or 60s because of specific cases that they want to contend that a district has not changed in 50 years. And is that true? Don't know if it's true. We got to go find out if that's true. And that takes some time to do. Well, very interesting stuff. Sounds like some good applications for computer vision and machine learning for Mm -hmm. those out there who might have an idea. And I want to just say thank you so much to Adam for joining us and for a fascinating and timely conversation. If you enjoyed the Business of Politics show today, I'd encourage you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you learned something new, I know I certainly did, please share it with a friend and help them get a little bit smarter. We will see you next time.